The theme that kind of keeps coming up is let's do business and that will solve a lot of problems. Do you really believe that? So I think business can be a bridge in many ways to show that we can work together. Once you have the same incentive to make money, it's a simple incentive to make money. And if you can collaborate from both sides, let's say from the Saudis and Israel, for the Palestinians and Israelis, to make money together, then we can now start and expand this to cultural things. Let's do a concert. You know, when we started working with the Palestinians, there was uh, a lot of fear between the sides. The Palestinians were afraid of the Israelis, the Israelis were afraid of the Palestinians. They started working together, there was positive friction about the kids, about jokes, about sports, about those things. When this positive friction happened, it took the fear level down. Eyal Waldman, it is great to have you here uh, for the 10th and final episode for this season of Invested. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much for inviting me, and it's uh, great to be the last. <laughs> Can I ask you, one of the things we ask uh, our guests to introduce themselves with is tell us your core value. My core value? Yeah. Uh, making a difference. Making a difference. So with that, I'll tell everyone that Eyal Waldman is the chairman now of Waldo Holdings. He served as co-founder, president, and CEO, and member of the board of directors of Mellanox Technologies from 1999 until 2020, 21 years, when the company was then acquired by NVIDIA, now a very famous company, for about $7 billion, which was probably the best acquisition of their lives. Is that fair? Yeah, it's uh, very fair. Yeah. Eyal co-founded and served as vice president of engineering of Galileo Technology, a semiconductor company. I don't know if Eyal knows this, but I was involved in raising some of the first money for Galileo from Weiss, Peck, and Greer, then a venture yeah. capital fund in the 90s. Uh, the company, that is Galileo, went public in 1997 and was acquired by Marvell Technology Group in January 2001 for $2.7 billion. Eyal has been a member of the board of directors of several private companies and public companies. Currently, he is a board member of Checkpoint Software Technologies, as well as PlyOps. Eyal, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show with us, and so let's get started. Thank you very much. I, I'm a previous uh, board member of Checkpoint. Oh, previous. Yeah, yes. Now emeritus. Yes. Yeah. So I actually don't know the answer to this question, Basia. How do we know each other? I, I don't remember, actually. I think we met a number of opportunities. Uh, they were both uh, social and professional, I think, on some investments. And then you had Una working for you. That's right. And Una was a friend uh, from San Francisco that relocated here. So to both uh, connections. Amazing. Una was our first uh, head of uh, marketing and comms at, at, at Olive. And what are you doing now with your time? Um, it's divided to, uh, two things. First is the family estate. So it's our family office where we invest in a very diversified set of, uh, tools and vehicles around the world. And the second one is, um, activities about, uh, the country or geopolitical things, trying to make uh, Israel a better place to live in. So, uh, you IPO'd way back, I think it was in 2007. We had two IPOs. In Galileo, it was 97, and in uh, Melox, 2007. 2007 yes. And then you sold the business to NVIDIA 13 years later or so, and then you left NVIDIA six months after that. What, what made you leave? You know, I, I decided that uh, I want to make sure that the transition or the integration goes as smooth as uh, it can, and then uh, I said, okay, I've, I've been 21 years the CEO of this company, and I felt like it's about time uh, to retire didn't want to be number two, so I said, uh, okay, Jensen, here's the team. We have a great uh, accomplishments of what we decided we're going to deliver, and I uh, decided uh, let's go and do something else. Was it hard for you to leave? 
Uh, you know, I was already prepared for this for more than a year and a half because between we signed the deal until it was closed, it was a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of ready for that. Yeah, emotionally, it's always hard to do such a big change, but I think I was prepared for it. Tell us about Mellanox. What was Mellanox and why was it so important uh, to NVIDIA and also hence to the artificial intelligence moment we're going through right now? Not just the AI world. Yeah. I mean, uh, Mellanox is important to nearly everything you do today. Uh, if you think of where we started, we started uh, focusing on the new standard of interconnect of uh, servers, service to server, service to storage. Um, and there were about nine companies running with us, parallel to us, to try and build this standard. I think we were the best, and uh, we, we kind of killed everybody that was trying to do it, whether it was Intel, IBM, uh, more startups, uh, and so on. Um, so, so what we did is the best, most efficient interconnect. And if you look today, first at the high-performance computing market, I think there's more than 66%, maybe even more than 70% today, of the supercomputers today are built with the Mellanox interconnect. Wow. And that enables you to do research, to do uh, defense, you know, all the DOD, DOE, labs, uh, Lawrence. DOD, Liver. Department of Defense, DOE, Department of Energy, Energy. Lawrence Livermore Labs. Los Alamos, uh, Sandia Labs. Energy Livermore. prediction, uh, weather prediction, war simulations, and a million other things. And more things, yeah, yeah. That, that we don't talk about. And we were also part of the agencies. So we've enabled people to do things they could not do before in the supercomputer world. Then we've seen that the same guys need that, that trying to build the hyperscale applications, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Microsoft, uh, Apple, Google, and so on, need the same infrastructure, a, a supercomputer infrastructure for their applications. So we started uh, focusing both on supercomputers, but then high-performance computing, but then also on hyperscale data centers. So we started winning them one by one, and also not just in the U.S., also in China, Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, JD.com, Bydance, near all of them, or most of them, the vast majority are using us. So we've been able to build the most efficient data centers now. And after that came artificial intelligence, machine learning, all that. So once you've been very good at supercomputing, high-performance computing, we took this to data center, hyperscale, hyper applications that wanted to serve billions or hundreds of millions of users, and then to AI, machine learning, and so on. So what we enable is really to utilize the compute and the storage power that for the benefit of many applications, many things that people can now do much better. At high performance and high speeds. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's to do with compute, with storage. So to build the fastest supercomputers, the scalability and the accessibility and, and the you know computation has to do with how fast you move data and shortest latency. That, that is a, a very good um, cor- cor- correlative to, to the performance you get. So we've been able to get to the lowest latency with the highest bandwidth, and on the way we're doing now manipulation of the data. So we're processing data, the DPU, the Bluefield, which now is getting more and more in the NVIDIA uh, platforms, is not just moving the data, we're also processing the data while we move it uh, through the wires. And why didn't NVIDIA buy the company? Well, I think it's there's an amazing synergy. I mean, from I know why. I just want to explain to the listeners. <laughs> so from earlier days, we actually worked with NVIDIA. And NVIDIA has built uh, graphic processing units. Yeah. Then people found that the floating point performance of a GPU is very much useful for supercomputing, for, for calculating 
of uh, you know um, mathematical or science uh, calculations, physics, and so on. You can use the floating point processor much better than a regular CPU. So we started seeing GPUs in the high performance computing in the supercomputing arena. What now you have is a very fast processor. You need to provide a lot of data very fast and with low latency to that processor. And we opened this bottleneck so that you can really utilize the processing power of the GPU. Without us, imagine you have a very big engine, but the pipe fitting it is very small. So your bottleneck is in the pipe. What we've done is matched the performance of the GPU to the pipe that's fitting it to the data we can bring in and out. And that's why there's a great synergy between NVIDIA and Mellanox from day one. So before we started talking, you mentioned something I didn't know, which was that you've been powering OpenAI or ChatGPT. From day one. From day one. Can you talk some more about that? Yeah, you know, OpenAI came and they wanted to do a very fast machine learning uh, infrastructure. And uh, we told them the best thing is to use InfiniBand, and it's the uh, most advanced uh, InfiniBand form. is the standard on which Mellanox uh, leads. Today, there's mainly two interconnect standards. It's Ethernet or InfiniBand. And we're seeing today the vast majority of AI platforms being using InfiniBand. InfiniBand is uh, growing very fast. They grew very fast to billions of dollars uh, every year. So we told them, look, if you want to do AI, the best interconnect for you is InfiniBand. And we started working for them. Obviously, in the initial stages, there's always um, things and bugs you need to fix in order to make it work. But we told this is the only or the best way you can really get uh, performance. And OpenAI were smart enough to continue using in InfiniBand and were successful, I think, part of it because of utilizing InfiniBand. So the whole kind of AI revolution that's blown up in the public consciousness in the last six months started six years ago with uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT, Sam Altman, and Yal Waldman's company in Israel, Using uh, InfiniBand, yes. Using InfiniBand. I think without us, uh, it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to get to the same results utilizing the infrastructure to get such results of uh, intelligence. So the m more data you can move around, the fastest you can move data, the more intelligent the machine is. By the way, I think this is just a, not to get too geeky for a second, but this is, a, is an important thing that people, many people don't understand. A lot of the limitation on the progress of AI is hardware related and not software related, right? And here comes Mellanox, I mean, been around for a while, and unlocks a hardware problem uh, that enables the data to move much faster, higher scale, uh, and be processed. And that unlocks AI. Yes. It enables AI to actually achieve much better results. It has to do with the amount of data you can look at a period of time. So if you can look at more data, you become smarter. It's a very simple equation. So what we enable is the machines to become smarter, to make better decisions, to build uh, better, better and faster neural networks or bigger neural networks, and this is why you become more intelligent. What, what do you think is, by the way, the next hardware barrier for the progression of artificial intelligence. You know, to, today NVIDIA is uh, doing, or Mellanox is doing uh, 800 gigabit per second, almost a terabit per second on one cable. Wow. I think this is going to grow. I think the computation of data or the amounts of data, the storage, the manipulation of data on the way, and this is also something that NVIDIA is doing with uh, Mellanox DPU. Um, so, so we are already working to unlock uh, the next data processing platforms of the future with, I think, over one terabit per second and more offload engines. So instead of the GPU doing all of the work, we're going to do some of the CPU, we're going to do some of the work in the data processing unit, in the DPU, in the blue field, so that there's more 
um, data processing being done on the way, and the platforms can get smarter and faster, better and better. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, when Mellanox got started, there was a big question about InfiniBand technology in general. I think if if my memory serves correctly, it was right after the whole Wi-Fi WiMAX uh, issue in the wireless wars where people said stay on 802.11 uh, to make it work. And the same thing at the time, was, was InfiniBand this just kind of esoteric standard that wasn't going to make it, even though a few people were working on it, and you know, maybe it'd be something else like like Ethernet. Is my memory correct about that? I don't know about the Wi-Fi, WiMAX, but um, InfiniBand was definitely a standard that a lot of people did not adopt. A lot of people were shy to use it, and they said it's like a temporal thing right. until Ethernet catches up, and everybody was waiting for Ethernet to catch up and get close to InfiniBand. What we've done, actually, we took our InfiniBand uh, engines and put them on layer 2 Ethernet. So we've made Ethernet closer to InfiniBand, but we've shown that still InfiniBand has a superior performance and is better utilization for high-performance computing, for machine learning, uh, for hyperscale data centers, and so on. But, but what made you so certain? I'm, I'm more interested in like the personal part. Like People doubted that this was... So, so not only people doubted, I yeah. think a lot of people buried Mellanox and said, you have no future. Yes. It happened when Microsoft and Brocade stopped using InfiniBand, and IBM then stopped and all announced that InfiniBand is uh, dead and they're not doing... What we've seen is actually the results. And I think it's because they were not using the interconnect in the right way or not using the right vendor for InfiniBand. <laughs> so what we've seen is continuous traction. And we've doubled our revenues from when we started seeing revenues in 2001. For the first five or six years, we more than doubled our revenues every year. We've seen the traction with everybody. And we didn't have even one customer say, no, we're not going to use you in the future but give us more bandwidth, give us uh, lower latency, give us better performance. Everybody needed performance. Everybody needed to move data. So we understood and we've seen things that other people from the outside don't see because it's not in production yet. And we kept on performing. We kept on executing, designing, architecting the next generations. And we understood it's going to catch and it's really caught. And today, I think most of the data centers that are really big and that really want to use data, they use InfiniBand, not Ethernet. Was it hard when people gave you up for dead? Said, no, it's always know. hard. You know, um, you need to uh, believe your own reality. So our investors, um, our customers, sometimes even our vendors were doubting our success. And you're there alone. And a lot of companies just uh, fall on the sidelines uh, trying to do InfiniBand. So it's always uh, tough, and uh, you need to make the decision whether you're going back to Ethernet, or you're staying with InfiniBand, you're staying in leadership, you're doing exactly what, not what everybody's telling you, actually against what everybody's advising you. And uh, if you make the right decisions and it uh, works, then you're very successful. Was it lonely? Like it was very lonely. lonely. Do you have any self-doubt at the time? You always have self-doubt. You must question yourself all the time. I have a big uh, painting in my house that's uh, by Marek Lechner, that's very colorful, but what it says, it says you are alone. And it's uh, very, very, and I bought this because uh, that's how you feel as a CEO. You, you lead the company and you feel very much alone. Um, but you need to make the decisions that you believe in. You need to be very uh, consistent and very persistent in what you want to do. And even when people tell you you're going the wrong direction, or you're doing things that uh, won't work, if you see different signs or different behavior, you should try and continue. And you don't need to go where everybody's going, 
you can sometimes go the other way and uh, be more successful. So apropos that, going the way that everyone's going or not the way people are going. So as AI has exploded into many people's lives, and I like to say if you wanted to make AI investments, you needed to make them five and seven years ago. Today, it's all priced in and too late, and now you're in the culture wars. Uh, so what do you think about the future of AI that other people don't think right now? I think AI is going to improve our world in so many ways that people don't think today. For example, imagine that you look at a courthouse and you look at the judge and you understand what aggravates him, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what to say, which words. And a computer can analyze this and a computer can also analyze the mimics and what. So imagine now the legal system looks at all of the cases this judge has done and has the video of everything in his court the computer will be a much better lawyer representing you in that court, in that judge, than any other lawyer coming into this uh, judge court, into the court of that judge for the third or fourth time. So this is just a one simple example where a machine learning, legal advisor, lawyer, whatever you want to call it, can perform better than anything else. And it's the same about everything. It's the same about psychologists. It's the same about advisors. You know, uh top uh, CEO of one of the largest or the largest uh, hospitals here told me they've done a curie of images between a AI machine and very, very, um, uh, you know, superior doctors or, or managers of departments and so on. And in about more than 50%, there was the same answer and they were right. The next 40 or 45, I don't remember the right number, 40 or 45%, the computer was right and the doctors were wrong. Wow. So in reading the images of, you know, health machines, whether it's MRI, whether it's x-rays, whether it's whatever, ultrasound and so on, the computer, the machine learning has done better decisions than real life doctors. It doesn't mean you need to replace each other, but it definitely helps to have a machine next to you telling you, suggesting you what's the right analysis or prognosis and uh, move forward. So in a lot of our future lives, we'll see AI machines helping us make the right decisions, helping us uh, be better, improve, and be more successful. What worries you about AI? Anything? Or is it all going to be much better? First, it's going to be much better. But second, if AI falls into the wrong hands, uh, it could be harmful. I don't, I'm not afraid about AI getting out of control by itself, but if it falls to the wrong. So you usually trust the computer. So if you ask for the best recipe, you will do what the computer tells you without thinking twice. You know, one of my friends put, he, he uses Waze. It's actually a she. So she uses Waze. And she put in the wrong address. And it took, an, instead of south, Israel took it to the north of Israel. She didn't even realize she's going 75 kilometers out of the path she was supposed to go. I give her a call. Where are you? She says, look, I'm here. So what are you talking about? This is not, she trusted the computer so much she didn't even check. She didn't, so if you get a recipe, a recipe from a computer, you trust the computer. You say, okay, I'm going to do what? I imagine the recipe or the computer falls in the wrong hands. It can tell you what to do, whether it's driving, whether it's doing other stuff. So that's uh, kind of where the dangerous uh, with AI is, our trust and our belief that it's uh, harmful when it goes into uh, people that 
can do different things with it, that's where you can utilize AI or use utilize for the wrong uh, doing. Just remind me of a funny story. My son was a teenager. He's now in his late 20s. And uh, we were driving, and it was the early days of Waze, and I put it on. He said, turn that off. I said, why is that? He says, you're going to have no brain left. He said, no one will know anywhere to go. If they get lost, they won't know how to navigate if we've outsourced our brains to, to Waze. Do you think like we're in a global war for AI supremacy now? Is that like a thing? Like Israel, for example, needs to have tons of NVIDIA GPUs and chips and supercomputers and, and, and big clouds because if we don't have our own to train AI models, we're going to be in trouble. We need to have these PhDs who are great in AI because otherwise we'll fall behind. You're talking now about intelligence and stuff like this or defense? Yeah, and, I mean, and economy. We, we, and the economy. Yeah, so, so on the commercial side, yes, for sure. I mean, the people that will utilize better AI uh, machines will perform better. It's a simple equation. And you need more compute power. Uh, you need more capabilities. You need better utilization and so on. So you need this in uh, the, every geopolitical thing. So on the commercial side, for sure, companies that will use more AI will be better, will win more of the markets. Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of states, it's the same thing. And you're seeing AI being used in uh, many units uh, here. If you look at um, Iron Dome, it's a great example. It's, Iron uh, Dome is the missile system that in intercepts missiles coming in. Yeah, I mean, we're so protected. I think 95% of the missiles shot into Israel are being uh, intercepted by Iron Dome. And the AI and behind it. Yeah, and it's yeah. all based on AI. And now we also have a Chetz, a arrow. The arrow missile, yeah. The arrow program. And now we're developing the laser uh, thing. So so all those things are based on AI. Human cannot have a fast response as a computer can in terms of understanding what's going on, where the missile is going to go. So everything is based on AI. And that's why we're so protected against what's going on around us. So you've been at AI really since the beginning. And... How do you think the roles of humans will change over the coming years, decades, as AI becomes an inevitability in our lives? I think our jobs will be better, safer, and uh, we'll be able to do more things we like. For example, we will not need to drive. If you look at the car of the future, and we know now it's public, we've been working with Apple on their cars uh, when it was still uh, confidential. Uh, but if you look at a car, a car is going to be a different platform. Today, it's a vehicle moving you from place to place. In the future, a car will be an entertainment, education, whatever you want platform that you can utilize while it transfers you. And you talk about drones in the future. While those things, whether it's an autonomous drone or autonomous car, will transfer you from wherever you want. I'm not talking about beams yet. <laughs> from wherever you want to wherever you want to get to. And at the same time, you can utilize the time to do whatever you want. Uh, if you want, you know, today students do their homeworks much easier with the ChatGPT. Actually, the ChatGPT write the papers for them. So doing the homework, understanding what's going on, reading articles, summarizing books, and so on, it's so much easier because you have a machine helping you do this. Uh, so imagine this in everything, in, in medicine and driving. So, so first, we'll be much safer, we'll be much healthier. Imagine you'll have um, robotic cops instead of humans. So they'll be much more efficient. They'll be 24-7. They will never be tired. They will never do mistakes. It's I, just, I uh, should short Dunkin' Donuts stock then, right? 
Cops won't stop to buy Dunkin' Donuts, I guess, if they're robots. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. They'll use something else. They'll use more energy and stuff like this. <laughs> no Dunkin' Donuts. So, so you said when we started that your core value is making a difference. Is there like a way to embed that value in AI? Right? Because AI is not going to be values neutral at the end of the day because the training set that you train it on is what's going to teach it what to do. The database is very important. The database needs to be accurate, needs to be true, and uh, needs to be neutral. How's it going to be neutral? I mean, there's no such thing as neutrality, really. I With mean, data? There is. You sure? With data? Yeah. If you look at data only in, from one location, one place, then you may be shifted one way or another. But if you look at data around, around the world or on the web, it should be balanced. You think no, so? Big, big number. Yeah, big numbers talk. Yeah. I mean, if you look even here, if you look at only at uh, Channel 14, you'll see a different data set and you'll believe different things and different theories and so on. But if you look at Channel 11 or other channels or private channels that are being built, you'll see different things. So if you look at both of them, you have a more balanced... Uh, but you'll need to then have a 100% set of humanities data and any partial set of humanities data will definitely... Yeah, I, don't, I don't say 100%. You never get to 100%. Yeah. But uh, big enough, yes. Large enough, yes. So, so data is very important. So when we talked about reaching conclusions or making the right uh, decisions also by machine, it's all based on data, based on your experience. It's the same if your experience is screwed up, you will not make the right decisions, right? So in machine, it's, it's the same correlation. But I think with machine, it's much easier because for you to look at all the data is very, very hard, completely impossible. For a machine, it's much easier, especially when you feed the data very fast to you. So you've created two multi-billion-dollar companies. Been very successful on a business side. You said your personal value is to make a difference. How do you embed your personal value of making a difference into your business? So, so you know, it it could be funny, but my main ambition was to build a very healthy company. It wasn't to make money, so it wasn't uh, financial. It was to build a healthy company where we work and we make we change the world and we make things bigger, faster, better. Uh, with a group of people that we all enjoy from that. And that's, so our integrity was second to none. We were transparent both inwards and outwards. Uh, we built a very straightforward, you know, when we, when I've done the negotiation of selling the company, we were like multiple entities involved. I never sent one thing that was not accurate a hundred percent. Um, so, so we've really built a company. I don't want to say second to none, but really a state of the art in terms of taking care of the employees, building the right teams, building the right incentives, the right motivations, uh, the right projects, very aggressive in our goals and achievements. That's why we've been able to um, overdo everybody and uh, take the market for us. So uh, we definitely made a difference for all of the people that have worked and touched uh, Mellanox in many ways. You, know, you, you talk about being kind of the best, bigger, faster, better, but at the same time at Mellanox, you decided to for lack of a better term, upskill people, right? You hired people in Ramallah, uh, Palestinians in Ramallah. You hired uh, Palestinians in Ruwabi, if I remember correctly. Uh, why'd you do that? I'm actually very proud also to do this in Gaza. So we had employees in Gaza. Um, first, I think on the business side, it makes a lot of sense. If you have employees that cost you a third or even less of what the same engineer costs you in Israel, it makes sense to hire more, more uh, cost-effective uh, uh, human resources than uh, in Israel, and they're, they're very good. The, so on the business side, it makes a lot of sense, same as people go now to or did to Ukraine, to Russia, to China, to India. 
it's getting uh, more cost-effective uh, resources. The second thing on the geopolitical uh, situation, I think it's about time we do peace and we help build a Palestinian com- a country that uh, can be independent and have its own resources. So what I've done is open one in Ramallah that moved to Rawabi. We had also people in Nablus and in Hebron. And then it was very important to me to open in Gaza. And it's a very interesting story because we went through four wars or operations while we were working with the same people. So we had one, the second Lebanon war in the north, and we had three operations in Gaza, now even more. So we found ourselves in the same day working with each other and killing each other. And I have no problem with that. I had uh, 22% of my company inside Gaza in reserve duties fighting and doing this, and at the same time talking to our employees there, taking care that they can continue and uh, strive and so on. And, uh, you know, people were very disturbed. You're paying tax to the Hamas. And I said, yes, we're paying tax to the Hamas because in China we're paying tax to the Chinese, in the U.S., in every place we're paying tax to whoever rules that area and the people that we work for us, they need to pay tax to the Hamas. I have no problem with that either. I think it's about time we stop killing each other. We've done this for 75 years. If you look around us in the past 60 years, 77 very violent conflicts have been resolved. And uh, whether they were killing, burning, raping, destroying each other completely, whether you look at the Kosovo, Serbia, if you look at uh, South Africa, if you look at Falkland, if you look at Northern Ireland and so on, awful things were done. Now there's peace. And there's one place where we keep killing each other for 75 years, which is completely unbelievable, crazy. And I think if you have two smart people, and you only need two, you don't need more than that, talk to each other, understand, and come to an agreement, which I think is very doable. We actually have a very uh, well-defined peace agreement that I think is acceptable, or will be acceptable by everybody. And I think it's a shame we're not getting there. So part of the reasons of doing this employments in the Palestinian territories and in Gaza was important to try and resolve some of the geopolitical position. I'm very proud we were the only Israeli company uh, to also employ in Gaza and grow. We gave them a lot of equity. So when we sold the company, they made like uh, five, six, a million dollars. Oh, wow. And the employees there, it's a lot of money for them. It's a lot of money Uh, anywhere. uh, Not for one person. I mean, (laughs) one person, and we had like a hundred and something. But for them, you know, but even doing like fifty or one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and it's not taxable in the Palestinian because they don't know how to tax equity yet. <laughs> Get your options in the Palestinian Authority, right? right? It's well, more tax efficient. Yeah. And did it ever? You mentioned the conflict, like you know, there's a battle going on, and you're paying the people and trying to keep them online. But did you ever think that your personal values, of which you just discussed right now, could come in a conflict with the business values in some way? Like just for just an example, maybe there were. were uh, more talented uh, engineers in Pakistan or in Bangladesh that would also be cheaper, not necessarily in Rawabi or Gaza. If if they're comparable, I would go for the Palestinian side because they're closer, they're the same time zone, they speak the same language. I can bring them to Ranana, right? And it's much easier. If, if Ranana is a town in Israel where uh, Melanox is headquarters. No, no, we're out here in York now. York now, I'm sorry. Ranana is, uh, we acquired Voltaire and the headquarters of Voltaire was in Ranana and we left, uh, we had a design center in Ranana. But our headquarters in New York now. Right. If there's a better business reasons to use the Pakistanians, we probably use the Pakistanians. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure we would have found a way to also use the Palestinians, maybe in a lower number of uh, resources. But I think it's also very important, even for the geopolitical reason, to use them. 
Was it hard? You acquired a couple of companies along the way, right? Just we acquired Voltaire. 11 companies. 11 companies. Two of them were public. We, we paid, I think, about $1.7 billion in cash for acquisitions. And we invested in about, I think, 12 or so companies, about $90 million. Was it, was it difficult? Like you, you started the conversation by stating the values of, of Mellanox and your own personal values uh, and the transparency and the accuracy. Uh, inevitably, when you acquire a company, you acquire a different culture. Was, was that difficult in any way? Yeah, it's very difficult. And how did you handle extreme. it? So first, we acquired 11 companies. All of them were very successful, uh, measuring success by being a, a, a creative in a, in a not too long time, in less than three quarters. So all of them became accretive, except for one, which we had to shut down, Katura uh, in uh, L.A., uh, so 10 out of 11 were very successful. It's very hard to integrate two companies. We have to put a lot of energy, a lot of work to make them feel at home, to make them become Mellanox employees very, very fast. And we put a lot of resources, uh, human resources, HR, and uh, engineering and management in order to make this uh, integration, post-merger integration, uh, as fast as we could. So yeah, it's not easy. Did you have to fire a lot of people who were bad culture fits? Not a lot, uh, yeah, but we had to fire people, and uh, it's very hard to do. And you all, well, not not everyone, but I think most people are always too late to fire uh, people they need to fire. So it's, for both performance and culture, yeah, it's it's you always, at least I do. I always try to think, okay, let's do it later, or maybe we they, we can change or stuff like this. And it always takes you longer to fire the people you need to fire. How do you fix that? You fire earlier. <laughs> fire faster. Easier to say, harder to do, right? No, when you uh, become more experienced. I'll tell you a short story. You know, I had a board member, I won't mention his name, and he was really considered son of a bitch, and he did everything very fast, very cruel, only was looking at the business. And I always said, I, know, I never want to be like him. I always want to be stay the same guy, nice, and... When uh, time comes and you grow and the company is growing and it's thousands of people and you talk about billions of dollars, you don't have time and you need to do what's the right thing for the company, not for the people. I mean, it's which is it's for the ninety eight percent of the right. of the employees, it's the right thing. But there's some people that are going to get hurt. And when you understand that this is your job, and no one else will do it, you need to do some things that before that you said would be very hard for you to do, and you do them. Because otherwise, you're not doing your job and you're lacking off. And so, yeah, you learn to become a person that needs to make tough decisions that you don't like. But you got to do them for the better of the company, better of the most of the, the vast majority of the employees, and better for the shareholders, for everybody. So you make those decisions. Is there any decision that you think back now, now that you're retired and passed the Melnox days, you go, those hurt my values or. No, that I never. Me. I never compromise my values. Never. Never. Something that really nags at you said I could have done that better. Look, you know, you make a decision every day, multiple times a day, to go right or left. You go there, but you succeed. Company's successful, so you don't know if you would have gone the other direction. Right. Would it have been better? So, if you ask me, I don't know if you made mistakes. I'm sure we made mistakes, but I see the bottom line results in two companies taking. You know, started two companies from zero, 
two, two companies public in Nasdaq and hundreds of them, and then sold two companies for billions of dollars. And many thousands of employees. And many thousands that became very rich and also shareholders that became very rich. We, uh, I think the, the fortune diversification or the wealth distribution in Mellanox was very, very good. We gave shares to secretaries, to uh, students, to everybody. And I think the wealth distribution was very good. I'm very proud. So, yeah, we made our sense. Now, whether we made mistakes, yeah, we made mistakes. Whether I, I can tell you today that we've done mistakes and I can point them out. You know, I, I don't think, you know, it's interesting that uh, when you're in that position as a CEO, I've made a lot of decisions that 100% of my people have told me to do something else. Not just my employees, but also board members, bankers, lawyers, and so on. And when you make those decisions, you know that either you're taking the company down to the ground, and there were a number of board members like this, or if you're successful, everybody's going to be happy and everybody's going to be successful. So, And then they forget that they were opposed to what you no, wanted no, to do. No, they don't forget. <laughs> they don't forget. They realize. And uh, then the danger is they come to rely more on you and, and, and your decisions. Mm -hmm. So the danger is they don't want to make their own decisions. And they say, okay, AL will resolve this thing for us and we'll come and give. So I, I never let them put all of the problems on my desk or on my door. I make them make their own decisions. But yeah, you make a lot of decisions by yourself, which is uh, against what everybody, really everybody tells you. And then they don't forget it. Uh, do you think a hired CEO could have made those hard decisions against everyone advice or only a founder CEO could make them? I think it really depends on the person. It depends on the person. So I want to switch gears for a second. You went to uh, Saudi Arabia last year. Yeah. Um, you visited and entered on a non-Israeli passport, I think was reported somewhere. Yeah. So that means you have another passport. Yeah. yeah you were in the U.S. for a while, I think, also, right? Did you live in the U.S. in California? Yeah, four years. Yeah, for four years, yeah. I actually spent in the U.S. about 21 years. 21 years. For like, yeah, 21 years. Why did you go to Saudi Arabia? Uh, first, I think we need to get really – I was, by the way, in the Emirates before we had relations with the Emirates. Mm -hmm. And we sold to Saudi Arabia, to Aramco, uh, for many years, Mellanox. Yeah, so we found many ways to do business with uh, countries and entities we don't have a formal relationship with. I think it's very important, and we can really help bring a lot of things to the Saudis, whether it's uh, technology, whether it's uh, you know methodologies, whether it's uh, things that they can utilize for them. And I've been to Bahrain where we met the uh, crown prince and he asked for, for specific things that we could help them in, in a number of directions. So I think we can do the same thing in Saudi in much better scale. So it's very important. And we had uh, met meetings with um, multiple people, both from the government, private entities and public entities, where we had initial meetings of how we can work together and do things together. So it's very interesting. What I was very proud to do that. What do you think the opportunities are? Technology? Opportunities are amazing. You know, it's, it's huge opportunities. Imagine that an hour and a half uh, flight, you know, now they're building Neom yeah. uh, south of uh, Aqaba. That's the, that's the new city, new Saudi city. The most advanced city in the world. It's going to have all the technology and so on, yeah. So, you know, we, we can do a lot of things there. And we can help make it better. We can help make it faster. We can we can do a lot of things more secure. And it's like an hour from Israel by car. Right? Yeah, from the south, from, from the south, from a lot. Yeah, yeah. Not, not from here. Uh, yeah, but it's an hour flight from here. Yeah. So so um, 
So yeah, I mean, we can really help. We can really be part of this geopolitical to bring this whole area to be the best place to live in in the world. And if we have peace with Egypt and Jordan, uh, and Syria is now in shatters, and Lebanon is also in its own crisis, but if we create peace not just in our neighboring countries, but we've done this now with Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and so on, if we do it with Saudi, and then go even to other countries on the other side of the Gulf, I think we, we're in a much better position, and we can take a leadership, not in a political situation, but in the technology and some of the business stuff and really gain for everybody. So I think, again, it's, uh, you know, we're trying to bypass the Palestinian problem and do this without solving this. But I think the number two today, nine months ago, it was number one issue that we need to resolve is the Palestinian problem. Do you think that with the Saudis and the Emiratis, these are shared values conversations or is it just kind of realpolitik and economic opportunity? What did you discover when you were there? So values are different in every country and we should not try to impose or enforce our values on other cultures. When you do business in China, you know, 30% of our business came from China. Wow. When you do, yeah, we sell more than $450 million in China. When you do business in uh, China, you do it in a completely different manner than you do it in Europe, than you do it in the U.S., than you do it in different countries. And if you do it also in the Arab world, you do it in a different manner. So you don't want to enforce culture on, on the different uh, countries. You want to learn to work with them. You want to learn to do business in the way that they're used to do business. That's why we always hired local people mm -hmm. to do our business in the different territories which is also very important. Don't, we didn't send Israelis to different territories. To, we, we actually hired local managers, local business guys to do this and work for us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things we can do together. And I don't think we should view ourselves as leaders. You know, we always have this, uh, we're better than everybody else. We're not. No, we're completely not. Yeah. And when you come and you look everybody at the same level, you say, we want to work together. It's not like we want to come in to help you. We want to work together, we want to succeed together, we want to really build and help you be successful, and we'll help you be successful. It's a completely different approach whereby we help us by helping them, and you know, it's it's a mutual thing, it's, it's a symbiotic thing instead of trying to teach or think we can do better or lead or whatever. So we don't want to lead, we want to work, we want to make money together, we want to succeed together, and we can want to adopt your culture in terms of doing business in your country. And we hope you respect our culture and how we uh, do business. So all this needs to work together, and we can do this uh, around the world. What do you think then? Uh, you mentioned you spilled four hundred fifty million dollars to China. What What do you think then about the U.S. decision to ban selling certain amounts of technology, certain kinds of technology, to China? Yeah, you know, I think uh, if you look over a decade ago, uh, the world became smaller and became more homogeneous. And you can do business everywhere in Russia, in uh, China, obviously Ukraine and stuff like this. Today it's much more going uh, localized. The globus is, or the world is getting diversified, not, not uh, getting closer. And it's a big problem. I think there are some things that President Trump has done right 
and I'm not completely for President Trump, in terms of protecting the U.S. from China in some aspects. But I think sometimes they've gone overboard. And this economic war between two giants is always a risk. Today, there's only one power in the world, which is the U.S. There's no one else. Russia is gone. And I think if you look down and you open the hood in China, you'll find China not as powerful as people think it is. But still, you need to respect. You need to work with them as if they are a power. Um, you need to, because they are a big economic uh, market for everybody, and they are powerful. Uh, at the same time, if the U.S. tries to crush China, I think in the long term, it will be harmful for the U.S. and for everybody, and China will develop its own technology, its own uh, ways, and this is another good thing. I think collaborating, working together is always much better than fighting and uh, working against each other. So if the U.S. came in and said, Mellanox, stop selling in China, that would... They did. They did, okay. They and did sometimes. To different, not only in China, also in other uh, territories. They came and told us, uh, you cannot sell to this and this, and um, some of it was public. Um, and the Chinese asked us, why are you obeying the U.S. government? You're not a U.S. entity. You're an Israeli entity. And we always uh, played with this. So we had a very simple answer. You know, more than 50% of our revenues come from the U.S. and a lot of it from the U.S. government. So the last thing we want is to kill our revenues and commit suicide by not obeying what they ask us to do. They cannot rule us, but they ask us not to do those things. So we collaborate with us. Um so we were in difficult situations in China and in other places, and we worked with the U.S. on this. In the U.S., it's uh, funny. We didn't get foci approval. But at the same time, all of the agencies have used this technology because without us, they would not be able to do what they could uh, uh, with the technology that we have. A theme that kind of keeps coming up is uh, let's do business, and that will solve a lot of problems. Do you really believe that? Yeah. I think uh, I mean you mentioned the the issues, for example, that were resolved around the world: Northern Northern Ireland, uh, Falklands, a million other places. That wasn't business driven. That was courageous political leadership on some levels. So, why is it you think they kind of hey, if we make more money together? Theological religion uh, in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is theological and uh, religion. Yes. Here we also have something like that, which is uh, completely not smart. Look, eventually, you need to understand and think what's important for you. If it's more important to you to have a certain stone than your children living together and not being killed by each other. And not, uh, you know, there's an operation now in Jenin. We had one soldier wounded this morning. And uh, I don't know if you have the experience. I had experience going into Jenin, into Nablus, into Shechem, um, into the Kasbah, and it's it's uh, scary to do those things. So... I think it's it's not that we will not stay powerful. We always need to stay powerful and keep our forces. But it's stupid to keep continuing killing each other. So I think business can be a bridge in many ways to show that we can work together. Once you have the same incentive to make money, it's a simple incentive to make money. And if you can collaborate from both sides, let's say from the Saudis and Israelis, from the Palestinians and Israelis, to make money together, then we can now start and expand this to cultural things. Let's do a concert. Let's bring Coldplay. I just saw Coldplay uh, in, in Milan. Milan. 
Yeah. I, I don't even know what Coldplay is, but my partner went. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it was great. My girlfriend was her dream, so I said, okay, let's go. We jumped. Anyways, let's bring Coldplay and play for the Palestinian and Israelis do together. So, so you can start doing business and then do cultural things and then start liking each other. You know, when we started working with the Palestinians, there was uh, a lot of um, fear between the sides. The Palestinians were afraid of the Israelis. The Israelis were afraid of the Palestinians. They started working together. There was positive friction about the kids, about jokes, about sports, about those things. When this positive friction happened, it took the fear level down. I don't know if you see Star Wars, but fear is the source. For the dark side. Right. It's, it's, it, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hates lead to, dis- to, to the dark to, side. No, to destruction. Uh. So it all starts with fear. So if we take the fear levels down, if we take the fear level down between both sides and we actually learn to work together and start to believe each other, and this can start with business uh, relationship, uh, we can do much better. You said your core value is to make a difference. How would you say you're making a difference today? And what's the difference you're most proud of throughout your last 30 years of work? So I don't talk about everything I do. It doesn't really matter for now. And maybe it'll be successful or not. I don't know. But um, you know, I'm very proud about uh, both uh, Galileo and Melnox. Uh, both have contributed to the world, definitely to Israel to thousands of people around the world, and we've done great things. Today, it's part of Marvell and part of NVIDIA. And uh, in other things, I do a lot of uh, uh, philanthropic uh, things. Uh, now I'm focusing on on trying to make this country more sanable or, or, or better in many ways. I think we're now in a, in a big mess which we need to get out of. And uh, the second thing, which I think is important, the Palestinian issue that we have. You've mentioned before in, in other interviews that you think Israelis are uniquely not afraid. And I think a lot of uh, what you described earlier, uh, the decision-making at Mellanox shows a certain lack of a fear gene. Uh, I, I wouldn't say we are afraid, but we know how to overcome and not let fear drive us uh, to do the wrong things. And so kind of not afraid of failure on some level, right? Actually afraid of failure. And so, so, you know, I've asked, not, I didn't even ask. People came and told me, one of my board members said, you know why you will never fail? And I asked, no, why? He said, you're so afraid to fail. You will do everything. <laughs> you will cover yourself 360 to make sure you don't fail. Interesting. So fear of failure is the best thing that can make you be successful. Why are Israelis like this? Well, you learn this in the army. You cannot fail. And what they teach you in officer courses, you always, first things will always go wrong. So you need to be prepared for everything. You need to have plan B, C, and D. And when you're in the army, it's not about money. It's about lives of your friends, life of uh, the people that uh, you lead. And you're scared. So imagine you're 21 years old and you're leading 30 people into darkness, into certain places. It's not an easy thing. So you learn to calculate differently, to think differently. You cannot be afraid because you need to do what you need to do. And um, it's also about building the right team and doing everything for the team. You know, when you're under fire, getting up and doing what you need to do, most people will not get up. Right. You need to trust your friends and so on that everybody will get up. So it's, it's that kind of attitude that they teach you 
in uh, the different uh, stages in the army that uh, you work by and you take it into the uh, rest of your career. It's a good thing then that everybody does the army. One of the things I've observed in the U.S. is you know, my grandfather was a military man in the U.S. Uh, he served in the U.S. Navy. I, I, I think the People's Army and draft is a good thing for creating national culture. Do you agree? Yeah, I think it's a good thing. I think it's uh, actually changes you completely. I see kids from 18 go yeah. from kids to being men. And uh, you see how uh, you go from being an individual to being a team. And I see how you create the capabilities of making the right decisions, of being serious. You cannot uh, make jokes anymore. It's, you need to have responsibility. You cannot be irresponsible. And you see people that have completely been irresponsible before the army become the best leaders in the army. And I think it's very good for a lot of things. I also think, you know, uh, some of the communities here in Israel will need to go start serving more uh, in different things. But yeah, I think it's very important. What motivates you now? You're sold to companies. What motivates you now every morning when you get out of bed? Uh, there's so many things. I, you know, it's, I'm, I'm amazed how busy I am. <laughs> I don't even understand why I'm so busy. And what's the motivation for that? I don't know. It's like uh, you got to get up and do what you want to do. It burns in you, though. You're still very active. Yeah, I, I really don't understand active. why, yeah. You don't understand why? No, I mean, I understand on the philanthropic side, but on the other side, I don't understand why. It's like sometimes I find myself, uh, why am I doing all these things? I can be on the beach and stuff like this, and I find myself very busy, including this interview, by the way. <laughs> Would you be yeah, bored? You know, I've, You'd I've, be bored I've been able to do an hour and a half being on the beach instead of sitting here, to, you know, working together with you. Ooh. <laughs> It's a true statement. Yeah, right? yeah, fair enough. So why am I doing I this? Thank I don't you. know. What? I don't know why I I'm doing I hope you'll this. enjoy it more than being on the beach. I don't know. <laughs> I think I'd enjoy it more on the beach. You see what kind of response you get to the interview versus I you actually have more time that's, you know, that's like interview. an hour being on the beach and an hour being with you. Trust me, on the beach is better. <laughs> <laughs> but this is no offense. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, but it's not just you, you know, it's like happens to me a number of times and I'm, and then I find myself busy. You see, it's like things like this. What makes you human and vulnerable? I think everybody's vulnerable. What about you specifically? I'm also vulnerable. What What makes you vulnerable or human? You know, you're, everybody wants to be loved. Everybody's sensitive. Everybody, you know, we're, we're all the same people. It's not like we're different. So it's the, if you're a big leader, that it doesn't mean you're not vulnerable. You cannot show that. You cannot show that you're afraid while you're afraid. So you can have your own feelings, but you cannot expose them when you're a leader. So that's uh, something. That is, is there something that makes you emotional? A lot of things. A lot of things. Yeah. You want to share or not really? No. You go to the beach. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> In a hundred years, they'll write the biography of Ayal Waldman. What's the title going to be? I don't know. You don't know? A lot of people ask me to write the biography and to do like a movie or documentary and stuff like this. Um, you know, it's it's until now I didn't do it. For many, I don't know why, but I didn't do it. I thought many for time. I didn't want to be more busy, and I said, "Better be on the beach than write the biography." <laughs> Serious, I'm not joking. Uh, now I know so what to do. I'm, I'm still, still, still in that in the in the same position. <laughs> uh, but when I think it's important, I'm doing this because I think it's important that people hear, and maybe be more successful in the future. But um, so I don't know what the, this. They want to do this about the Palestinian episode in my life. They want to do it about the technology, about building this melanox. So I don't know what they'll write. One last question. When you look at ChatGPT and OpenAI today and know you were there at the beginning on the infrastructure level, and it's now blowing up into people's consciousness, how does it make you feel? It makes you feel good. 
But we've done this. We've seen this in a number of companies, not just uh, ChatGPT and OpenAI. I mean, if you look at JD.com, if you look at uh, ByteDance, at uh, TikTok, we've been in the very early stage when there's a group of small amount of people. So we've we've done this in many groups that have grown to to be amazing companies in the past. So it's not just ChatGPT that everybody's talking about today. You know, one of the lessons I take from what you said right now is that there's a lot of things we don't see uh, that are behind the scenes in the experiences we have every day, whether it's uh, people using these great internet services or chat GPT or whatever it is that we don't see that are so important and so many thousands of people and stories toil away on in the background and the really human stories behind them. And not just that, there's real hardware behind them that people just don't see or talk about, but without them, none of this works. By the way, I think more than 80% of the time you touch your phone, you go on Metalmox on the other side. So all of the social media whether it's uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all them use mouse, whether it's uh, all of the, you know, most of the, so 80% of the time you touch your phone, maybe now even more, you go through mouse on the other side. So we're very proud of that. And uh, now we're taking more percentage of uh, the markets. Yeah, we've done a big change. Intel said, everyone, Intel inside, you've never done Mellanox inside or no, you know, Mellanox in your mobile. There's a big difference. We're not selling to consumers. Yeah. Fair. So we don't need to do advertising. We're selling to engineers. So we're selling engineers to engineers. So it's a much easier sell. It's more a technology sell. When you start needing to advertise Intel Insight, it means you're starting selling to consumers. And into we didn't need to do that. I think the, the title of this episode should probably have been the story behind everything you do, which is Mellanox, but we may need to call the episode, I would have preferred to be on the beach rather than be with you. Yeah. So I agree. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening. This is actually the 10th and final episode of this season of Invested. We'd be happy for your feedback to the existing episodes and suggestions for guests for the next season uh, of Invested. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever else you listen to it. And if you're listening to us on the beach, don't forget to make the extra press of the button for five stars. You can learn more about Ayal Waldman on LinkedIn and Twitter. On Twitter, he is at E-Y-A-L-W-A-L. Y'all, thanks for coming. Thank you very much. That's a wrap on season one of Invested. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Please remember to rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Also, we're looking for suggestions for our next season of Invested. So please email us to invested at aleph.vc. That is I-N-V-E-S-T-E-D at A-L-E-P-H dot vc and we'd love your feedback on the current season of invested and you can send us that email address or just write it to us on linkedin and twitter we'd love to hear from you